Well, I want to invite you to turn again this morning to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, let us pray. Father, thank you this morning for just the precious time of fellowship and singing and and praising thee. We we thank you so much that you have brought us together at this point in time and the specific uh, moments. And thank you that we can worship a God that is glorious and unchangeably holy, uh, a God that is mighty, a God that is always accomplishing your purposes. And I thank you so much for just the time together and Pray these moments for the help of your Holy, Holy Spirit to convey Holy Scripture in a way that is honest, excuse me, honoring to thee and a help to each one that is here. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to contemplate rich and precious things in your holy law. So I would pray that our time together would be certainly pleasing to thee, but also uh, edifying, strengthening to our hearts and our minds as we seek to live for your glory in this world. So we uh, commit our, uh, this time to thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been engaged uh, in these studies in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and indicated that the, the subject matter is God's final word in his Son. Uh, from the middle of verse 2 down through verse 3, there are, are seven facts or, or realities about the Son, and we've considered six of these. Uh, number one, he was appointed heir of all things. And number two, he w- it was through him that God made the world. Number four, he's the radiance of his glory. Number five, he's the exact rep- representation of his nature. Um, number uh, six, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then he made purification of sins. So these facts and these realities, that individually and collectively, um, they, they bring out his unique and glorious greatness, and they have at least two effects on our thinking. Number one, it deepens our persuasion of the, the suitability that the final revelation is in him. That is, it deepens our persuasion of the rightness or the propriety that God's final revelation is in his Son. And then it also underscores the appropriateness or the rightness of his being exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, And we could add also um, this fact that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the the seventh reality um, in this Christ-exalting sequence. Um, And it's really the primary assertion of verse 3 
um, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, the prior facts about him, they're all really subordinate from a, just from a kind of a flow of thought perspective. They're all subordinate to this main declaration. So being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Just by way of a, a bit of further introduction, I'd have you note uh, the combination here of purification of sins, his sacrificial work, and his exaltation, they form two great categories that are, are developed throughout the book of Hebrews, purification of sins and exaltation. Uh, as William Lane puts it, the two clauses announce the major themes of the writer's Christology, that is sacrifice and exaltation. None of the other declarations in the opening paragraph will receive a comparable elucidation or clarification in the body of the discourse. And then one, one other writer put it like this, the whole argument of the epistle revolves around the idea of the son who has become the, the perfect high priest by his death and exaltation. So these two themes, sacrifice, death, and exaltation, are developed especially uh, throughout the book. And, and this phrase, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is going to be our focus this morning, um, it's important on the one hand because there's a clear allusion here to Psalm 110 and verse 1. Psalm 110 and verse 1, which reads, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Uh, the title in my Bible of Psalm 110 is the Lord gives dominion to the king. H.C. Uh, Leupold in his work on Psalms wrote, it's not merely a coincidence that the psalm is quoted more often in the New Testament than is any other. Uh, this fact is a testimony to its importance. And Peter O'Brien, just kind of in the for your information category, makes reference to a work by D.M. Hay entitled Glory at the Right Hand. He claims that there, there are some 33 quotations or allusions to Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4 that are scattered uh, throughout the, um, the New Testament. Um, and then also, um, as Peter O'Brien notes, this goes back to the messianic interpretation of Psalm 110 and verse 1. The, the point here is that Jesus consciously applied the words that I read in your hearing to, uh, to himself. That is Psalm 110 and, and verse, verse 1, which reads, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The, the Lord himself consciously applied those words to himself. Um, in Matthew twenty six sixty three, we read, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, verse 64, You have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And also, I would add this, uh, the repetition of this phrase uh, really helps to understand the structure of the book of Hebrews, or the structural development. Uh, so we have it in our text, and notice again in verse 13 of chapter 1, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Then it occurs in, in chapter 8 and verse 1 in connection with our Lord's high priestly ministry. Uh, that reads, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And then it's, it's found again in chapter 10 and verses 11 and 12. And here it's, it's in contrast to the priests of the Old Testament. Um, chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And then one more time in um, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, uh, it's a reality that really helps us to endure in the Christian life. Hebrews 12, 1 reads, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So with those uh, thoughts behind us, uh, I want to occupy your, your minds this morning really with our, our Lord's exaltation in, in two different respects. In the first place, I want to expand a bit on his high priestly activity itself. Uh, and then secondly, we'll focus a little bit on his location. So first of all, this want to f- emphasize uh, the, the high priestly activity itself. We're told in the text, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, this refers to his exaltation. It refers to a particular time in salvation history subsequent to his death and burial and resurrection. So it's, it's a definitive occurrence in the unfolding drama of redemption. B.F. Westcott wrote the Solomon taking the seat of authority. He calls it that. And William Lane comments on its significance. He says, The declaration that the Son has been exalted to a position at God's right hand bears an unmistakable allusion to Psalm 110.1, which we read. The concept of enthronement at God's right hand would convey to contemporaries an impression of the Son's royal power and unparalleled glory. So he's saying the initial readers would have thought power and glory. That's what would have came to their mind. In antiquity, generally, the right side symbolized supreme authority and highest honor. Christians were familiar with the notion of the Son's session at God's right hand from creedal confession and hymns. They would recognize immediately that the reference was to Christ's exaltation after his resurrection. And just to elaborate a bit further on this, uh, the, the reality uh, of this expression uh, uh, finds um, is found in the preaching of the apostles, just an example or two, and uh, in the, the preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, as Jesus whom you crucified. Another example, Peter before the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 5, when they had been brought before the council, they stood, excuse me, when they had brought them before them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So he's raised to the place of God's right hand to, to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. Matthew Henry shows how differently God himself responded to his own son than people did. He says, you loaded him with disgrace, but God has crowned him with honor, and ought we not honor him who God honors? 
So he grants repentance and forgiveness of, of sins. And again, Matthew Henry writes, but repentance and remission of sins are blessings. They, referring to the initial hearers, repentance and remission of sins are blessings. They neither value nor see their need of, and therefore they can by no means admit this doctrine. That's a much of the great tragedy, I think, of the human condition. Apart from the Spirit's work, people see that no need for being reconciled to God, no need for repentance, no concern for forgiveness of sins. But under this first heading, our Lord's exaltation to the place of honor and dignity is significant, I'm going to suggest, in at least four different ways. Um, Significant or important in four different ways. First of all, it helps us to understand and appreciate uh, the incomparable power available that is needed to live the Christian life. And presuming that we also all would say, yes, I need power in living the Christian life. And this helps us to understand the kind of power that's available in the living of the Christian life. I'm just reading here from a prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all so paul's prayer here and i think it applies to all christians is to be aware of the power that is available in christ for the living of the christian life and you and i need great power in the living of the christian life because we have a conflict with the world and the flesh and the devil we need this kind of power so so he declares that this power is in accord with the strength that was expended in raising his son from the dead and seating him at the place of power at his right hand well then number two this exaltation of our Lord to the right hand of majesty on high, it underscores the absolute security and eternal safety of our souls. It underscores the absolute security and safety of our souls. It does this in two different ways. Number one, it puts on display the ongoing ministry of our Lord in behalf of his people. The ongoing ministry of our Lord in behalf of his people. I'm going to read two verses from Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and verse 34. And they occur in a section that really champions the external, excuse me, the eternal safety of our souls. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. It's kind of an extended comment by Charles Hodge, and I think is applicable. He says this in the following verse. He's referring to Romans 8, 33 and verse 34. This in the following verse show how fully the security of believers is provided for by the plan of redemption. He quotes, who is he that condemns? And the answer is no one. And in support of this assertion, there are in this verse four conclusive reasons presented. Number one is the death of Christ. Number two is his resurrection. Number three is his exaltation. And then number four is his intercession. And this is sort of dropping down. So he talks about those, but dropping down to who is even at the right hand of God. That is, is associated with God in his universal dominion. From these and other passages in their connection, it's evidence that Christ is exalted to universal dominion. All power in heaven and earth is given into his hands. In this case, 
how great the security it affords the believer. He was engaged to effect salvation as the director of all events of all worlds. And then, who also makes intercession for us, he writes, who acts as our advocate, pleads our cause before God, presents these considerations which secure us pardon and continued supply of divine grace. He intends to save those who put their trust in him, and therefore, in their behalf, he presents before God the merit of his mediatorial work and urges their salvation as a reward promised him in the covenant of redemption. How complete then the security of those for whom he pleads. So that the sense of security arises in part from his universal dominion and power at the place of God's right hand, but, but also the, the ongoing redemptive activity of Christ in our stead. And, and the, the close um, connection here, this sequential connection between purification of sins and, and the exaltation to the place of the right hand, that implies very strongly that, that his intercessory work is presenting before God, as Hodge puts it, the, the merit and the mediatorial work on behalf of his people. So that this exaltation to the right hand of God brings out the eternal security and safety of our souls in part by his ongoing intercessory work on our behalf, but then secondly, by the location from which this activity emanates from, from the right hand of God. And, and here I would simply want to stress that Christ, by virtue of his exalted position, is secure from all enemy assaults. He is secure from all enemy assaults. The Puritan John Owen puts it like this, the security of Christ from all his adversaries and all sufferings for the future. The Jews knew what he suffered from God and man. Hereof he lets them know what was the reason. It was for the purging of our sins. And moreover declares that now he is everlastingly secured from all opposition. For where he is there his adversaries cannot come. He quotes John 7.34, which is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you shall seek me and, and shall not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And Owen says he's above their reach, beyond their power, secure in the throne and presence of God. Thus, the fruit of the church being secure from the rage and persecution of Satan is said to be caught up unto God, to his throne, Revelation 12, 5. Hence, though men do and will continue their malice and wrath against the Lord Jesus to the end of the world, as though they would crucify him afresh, yet he, he dies no more, being secure out of their reach at the right hand of God. So the idea here is that if the goal of the resistance movement was was to kill the established leader. They have to know where he's at, and they have to have access to him. They have to be able to, to get there. And the, the enemies of our Lord, they were able to do, do harm to him when he was in this world. They were able to kill him, but not now, because they cannot go to where he is at. There's a great gulf fix. So the exaltation of our Lord to the right hand of the majesty on high brings out the eternal safety of our souls in, in two respects his ongoing redemptive ministry on our behalf, and then this unassailable location from all the enemies of our soul and of the gospel. And then number three, this exaltation is significant, I think, also. Um, it empowers us to serve the Lord in the midst of pervasive evil. It, it allows us and encourages us and helps us to serve the Lord in the midst of pervasive evil, which is always the way it is, Right? It helps us to serve the Lord no matter what the external circumstances are. I want to make the point here by drawing your attention, if you would, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 22. It concerns the uh, example of Micaiah. He's an Old Testament prophet. And even though the emphasis here is um, 
knowing that God is on the God is on the throne, I think the awareness, at least in our souls, that Christ is at God's right hand will have the same effect upon us. I'm going to begin reading in verse five um, in a moment. Verse five, and just to, re- to remind you, um, Ahab um, was one of the most wicked kings uh, in the northern kingdom. They were all bad, but he was the worst. Um, his wife was Jezebel, which did not help. Um, there, and there was a, a, it's in the context of a war with Aram. Um, he enlists the help of Jehoshaphat, who's a king in the southern kingdom, who generally speaking is spoken of positively in a spiritual way. So Jehoshaphat uh, agrees to help Ahab in this conflict, which was a bad move to align himself with such a godless man. But in, beginning in verse 5, we see that he had enough spirituality left. He wanted to know, is this endeavor of God? So notice beginning in verse 5. Uh, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. So he assembles this, this contingent of false prophets, verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat, he, he sees through this. He really wants to hear from the true God. So he said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And Ahab's response is, he says to Jehoshaphat in verse 8, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on the throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenina, made horns of iron for himself and said thus says the lord with these you shall gore the arameans until they are consumed and all the prophets were prophesying thus go up to ramath gilead and prosper for the lord will give it into the hand of the king then the messenger who went to summon micaiah spoke to him saying behold now that the words of the prophets are uniform uniformly favorable to the king please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably so the idea here is we we've got unanimity here among the groups just don't rock the boat But verse 14 reveals the kind of man that Micaiah is and why we want to emulate him. He says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? He answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And Micaiah, he's using sarcasm here and Ahab knows that. So verse 16, then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me? Nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord. Now comes the word from God. Verse 17, he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Now the question arises, how can Micaiah exhibit such courage and conviction in the midst of this hostile environment? 400 vocal false prophets doesn't seem to faze him at all. Well, verse 19 is the key. Verse 19, therefore, Micaiah, excuse me, and Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne 
and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. This is really the key to him. He gets this, this vision. It's like Isaiah chapter 6. There is this sense in the soul of God's majesty and rule and dominion and glory. He, he sees this. <clears throat> now, there's another factor here that I think is important. Notice in verse 20, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? He said, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So another helpful factor here. In the presence of, of this evil, and it doesn't phase him, he, he knows it's all under God's sovereign control. Verse 23, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these all your prophets. The Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Uh, as, as one put it, though God himself does not do evil, he sometimes uses evil agents to accomplish his purposes. Let me just kind of press this a little bit because uh, I, I think it's helpful in this respect, but the, this reality of God using evil people with sinful motives to accomplish holy purposes. It's one of the most well-attested themes, I think, throughout Scripture. And as we've noticed before, um, God uses ungodly, unregenerate people to accomplish his purposes because he doesn't really have much else to work with. Most people are on that broad road that leads to destruction. Just, just to cut some bullet points here, Joseph's brothers uh, sold him into slavery. Um, they hated him. And at the end of the book of Genesis, they're afraid of what Joseph might do because Jacob is dead and Joseph is in the position of power. Power. But he says, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It doesn't say you meant evil for me and God allowed it for good, but you meant evil and God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In the early chapters of, of Job, Satan approaches God with the motive, I think, of really wanting to destroy him. He, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. And so as you're aware, Job goes through these trials that are just really hard to fathom. And, and when you get to the end of the book or ask the question, how should I as a believer think about all this? How am I to, to process it? Or what lens should I look through? Well, we're told in verse 10 of chapter 42, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before it came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. I'm just reading what it says. They consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. This, this is not a, a, a misprint. This, this is God's intimate involvement in the process accomplishing his own purposes. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I believe this is prior to his own conversion, was used of, of God to uh, attack Egypt. And, and in Jeremiah chapter 43, un, he's unsaved. He's referred to as God's servant. God's servant. And at that time, again, I, I don't think he was converted. Um, he was egotistical. He was unsaved. He was a pagan king. He was caught up with his own glory. He had no clue that he was being used by God to accomplish his purposes. He was serving himself. Now, the quintessential example of this is answering this question. This is a test question, by the way. This is a test question. Um, who was responsible for the death of Christ on the cross? You, you got five options. 
Who was responsible for the death of Christ on the cross? I'm getting some help here from Isaac Ambrose. Uh, A, Judas out of greed. B, the Jewish leaders out of envy. C, the Roman governor Pilate. D, God the Father out of love. E, all of the above. How about that? That's right. They were all responsible for this this same event. Peter lays it out clearly in Acts 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. So God with holy motives, man with unholy motives, they're, they're ascribed responsibility for the same event. So that, that's, that's the lens that you and I look at or that we view this world through this reality of God in the throne and Christ our Lord at his right hand it empowers us to serve God in the midst of pervasive evil on every side we we understand God is always accomplishing his purposes he's been operating this way since the fall he has no other options so the plots the stratagems the schemes of sinful fallen man have no power at all to thwart the glory the, the Lord of glory from accomplishing all of his redemptive purposes um, number four, it says sub point four under main point one, in case you're wondering where we're at here. Sub point four under main point one. Uh, the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God the Father assures our souls of the, the certainty and the nearness of his return. It assures our souls of the certainty and the nearness of his um, return. A part of the passage I read earlier is in uh, verse 64 in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Jesus said to him, you, you said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. So here our Lord applies Psalm 110.1 to himself, this enthronement psalm, but, but he connects it with his return. Now, what effect should this have on us? Well, more than one, um, the, it, it should, we, there should be a readiness on our part to have him come, we should anticipate it and look forward to it with a certain eagerness. But one point I wanted to make here is the, the certainty of our Lord's return, and it's the next thing to happen in the redemptive plan, this age and the age to come. This age will be consummated by the return of the Lord. And, and one right response for you and I is, is sobriety. It's sobriety. Um, a little bit earlier in the chapter, this is from Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's on his throne. He's coming in glory. Verse 32 says, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then there's several verses about how he will deal with the sheep. And then in verse 41 He will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not take care of you. Then he will answer them saying truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So it is exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. Um, 
it, it has the it has the effect of deepening our our persuasion of the certainty, the nearness of his coming. We should look forward to that with eagerness. But it does um, it does produce a certain sobriety in our soul because the doom of the unregenerate is sealed. So in the first place, that was point number one. So in the first place, uh, the activity connected with his exaltation. Secondly, and, and much, um, much more brief, uh, secondly, just a bit about his, his location, his location at the right hand of the majesty. I know we've, we've touched on that. Um, majesty, here, here's a term that stands for and refers to God. As Peter O'Brien put it, Christ's exaltation was, was God's mighty act of raising him on high to a position of unparalleled honor and universal authority. The term majesty stands for, for God and underscores the impression of the Son's surpassing glory. His enthronement at the right hand of the divine majesty shows that the, the rank and rule of God, the Father, is not compromised in any way, while the addition of this, this term high focuses addition, excuse me, attention on the heavenly sphere of Christ's exaltation. In the Old Testament, this is associated with power, Psalm 93.4. The Lord is on, the Lord on high is mighty uh, with his uniqueness, Psalm 113.5, who is like the Lord our God, who's enthroned on high. Two comments in closing in this connection. Uh, number one, the majesty and therefore the glory that our Lord partakes of includes especially the reality and the awareness of his redemptive work. The, the, the majesty and the glory that Christ partakes of right now at his, at his place of exaltation especially includes a perception and awareness of his redemptive sacrificial work on the cross. He made purification of, of sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So it, it's more than just his intrinsic glory. He was always the radiance of his glory. That, that was always true. But now it, it's a glory that includes or has in view to a great extent his, his redemptive accomplishment. Paul makes the same point in Philippians chapter 2, becoming obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him on the basis of his death on the cross, making purification of sins. On that basis, God hath highly exalted him. Well, secondly, relatedly, personally, the right response to that awareness of, of this sacrificial achievement on, on our behalf on the cross, that, that, that should inhabit our praises that that awareness should inhabit our praises to to the lord jesus christ this awareness should constitute no small part of our adoration of the lord of glory now how do we know that that is true how do we know that we should praise him especially for his redemptive work especially for his sufferings especially for his making purification of sins simply listening to what the apostle john says in revelation chapter 5 he saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or, or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders... A lamb standing as if slain. He just referred to him as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now he says, I, I see him as the lamb standing as if slain, having, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> 
having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having one, a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. And here's the lyrics of the song. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. Why is that the case? For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. The, the, the lyrics of the song and the reason for the praise were the awareness of his suffering on the cross. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is on the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You could call this his mediatorial glory. It's a conscious awareness and apprehension of, of his sacrificial work in our stead and that should elicit or bring forth the same response from us as it does of those who are in heaven, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning and this day that we can worship the lamb that was slain. We thank you that you have purchased with your blood people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We thank you. We are of those that you have drawn to yourself and that you purchased us with your blood. We thank you that when you suffered on the cross, when you died on the cross, when you bore the wrath of your Father on the cross, we thank you that you had us in mind. We thank you for suffering in our stead. And I pray you would take what we have considered this morning and increase our own love for thee, our own delight in thee, our own communion with thee. We thank you for the reality of your obedience, the success of your work on the cross in our behalf. And we pray that you would cause us to be like those in heaven that would praise you and and glory in your holy accomplishment in our behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.